0: You're listening to Make It Thrive, the company culture podcast. I'm your host, Lizzie Benton, company culture coach and founder of Liberty Mind. And I want to inspire people to create unique company cultures where our human potential can thrive. In this podcast, I talk to organizations, thought leaders, and people about the impact of company culture. Together, we can make it thrive. This season is sponsored by the Breathe Culture Pledge, a community of like-minded SMEs who are committed to building and maintaining a people-first culture. Whether you've got your company culture nailed or need a little guidance to improve it, joining the Breathe Culture Pledge gives you the recognition and resources you need to help your culture flourish. Plus, it's 100% free. Join over 700 SMEs and invest in your people today. Head over to breathehr.com forward slash culture pledge to find out more. Hi everyone and welcome back to Make It Thrive, the Change Maker Sessions. For the last and final episode of this season, I can't believe how quickly it has gone by and how many amazing conversations um, I've got to have with people who truly inspire me in the work that I do. I know that this season has been jam-packed with practical ways in which you can begin to create positive changes in your company culture. And I truly hope there's at least one takeaway that you've been brave enough to put into action. So if there's something that you've been playing with or experimenting with because of this season, I would love to hear from you and know what it is. Of course, there's one last and final session for you to enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Lisa Gill, self-management coach, tough leadership trainer, author and host of the Leader Morphosis podcast. It was a real honour for Lisa to join me on this podcast as I've been listening to her podcast, Leadamorphosis, for quite some time now, and I've learned so much from the conversations that she has with experts and thought leaders all around the world about how they're changing and using new ways of working. So I had the privilege of being trained by Lisa last year as well through Tough Leadership. So I know she's going to bring so much wisdom to today's conversation, and there's going to be even more that you can take away. So, without taking any longer, let's dive in and get started. Hi, Lisa, and welcome to Make It Thrive, the Change Sessions. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having
0: me. So, this is probably going to feel um, a little bit strange for you because you're normally on the other side of the pod of the microphone with your podcast leadamorphosis um so I know that today I feel very excited because I kind of get to um I suppose pick your brains and have a little um I suppose investigative conversation around kind of change making and what's going on in the world of work and so I feel very privileged today um I would love to kick off with asking you about you've been in this kind of future of work new ways of working for quite some time now and I would love for you to kind of share with us what you've seen over the past kind of few years and how things have been evolving because pre-covid you were you were doing new ways of working I mean that some of this stuff is is not new to you to some of us it is brand new so I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on how you've seen the shift happening in kind of from your viewpoint.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting question because when I when I first started my company Reimaginaire, I think that was about six seven years ago. It was a bit of a punt, really. I wasn't sure that there was going to be enough work out there or enough people who were interested in new ways of working. And in the beginning, it it didn't it did feel very niche. And then I feel like in the last. Even in the last kind of two years leading up to the pandemic, it felt like there was suddenly like an exponential increase in interest in, you know, self-managing teams and things like this. And it's still, you know, niche, it's still not in the mainstream. But then, of course, the pandemic happens and people start realising, you know, remote work and flexible working and and, and kind of questioning you know, what does a manager do? And, you know, that whole conversation about, oh, you know, what if I don't know what people are doing, because I can't see them in the office anymore, and then realizing, well, did I ever really know what they were doing? <laughs> and and why do I need to know what they're doing anyway? So it's brought up lots of re- really interesting questions about trust. And I remember talking to an organization that told me that um, when their meetings all suddenly went online, it sort of enhanced in a way some of the dynamics that had been there when they were working in an office and made them more obvious. For example, they had these weekly meetings where their manager, who was quite controlling, now in online meetings, it became so obvious that they did like all of the talking and everyone else became even less engaged because it was online and they could just have their camera off and sort of check out. So I think think there's been some interesting questions asked and since the pandemic i mean i know we're not through it yet but it does seem like there's a new interest in new ways of working because suddenly i think new things feel possible and kind of assumptions that people had taken for granted before are have been called into question i think so It's interesting also to see a lot of like health and social care companies like in the UK, for example, there seems to be real movement there of exploring new ways of working because they have to, you know, resources are so scarce and things are so challenging and complex. They're realizing that top down bureaucratic hierarchy is just not going to cut it anymore. So it's really fun to see those kinds of organizations recognizing You know we can really make even more of a difference if we change things like radically
0: yeah absolutely oh my gosh you're so true and it's it's one of those things i think where you kind of initially when people talked about new ways of working like you were saying it was something that maybe only particular sectors or people believed particular industries could do it that they were like oh well this kind of industry or sector is ideally set up for these new ways of working Whereas, like you say, you've now got these um, very sort of complex and, like you say, reduced in their resources, You know they haven't got all the tech and all the fandangled things that some of the other industries have got. And, and you're seeing it, this movement kind of grow in, in other areas. I mean, what do you say to people when, when they sort of say, oh, well, our, our industry or our, our business couldn't possibly work like this? What, what kind of comes up for you?
1: Yeah, I, I I get that question a lot. I get it in terms of, you know, that wouldn't work in our industry. I get it in terms of that wouldn't work in our country. You know, people have often said to me like, oh, you know, in, in India or in China or in Africa, that wouldn't work because we're really hierarchical. And it's interesting because I think, to my knowledge, there are examples of really radical kind of progressive organizations in just about every sector and in just about every country in the world. So I do think that in a way that's that's sort of a, an excuse or I think is coming from like a, a fear-based sense of like just an inability to imagine that it's possible. But I think because there are so many examples out there and companies like Corporate Rebels do a really good job of creating like bucket lists of these kind of innovative companies around the world you can really see when you look at all the different industries and countries like there are so many examples and that's I think very encouraging because anyone who says that to me I can usually say well check out this organization in your industry or in this country and and see what you think you know it is possible. Yeah definitely
0: it has it's been exciting and I I know um, as someone who you know has, has been in the UK and and only really seen a bit of movement over the past few years with self-management coming further into the UK because we've been kind of quite slow, I think, to adopt it. There's only very few organisations that I know of that are kind of fully self-managed. Some of them have what we would call, you know, teal dots in an orange world, where they're kind of practising some of the things and maybe they've got some network teams and departments, but then the rest of the organisation is very hierarchical. So there is a bit of a slow shift here. I mean from your perspective I mean you've got so much experience in this now Lisa what really kind of stops people from adopting these new ways of working what you know you said about that excuse of oh well it won't work in my sector is that it or does it just get sometimes a little bit difficult and people think oh actually this isn't for us and and kind of stop too soon
1: yeah I think the the sort of obstacles to Number one, even considering something like self-managing teams, for example, and then also, you know, once people have started experimenting with them and stopping too soon, like these are two things that I see a lot. And I think in the in the first instance of you know hesitating to even try, I think I have to remind myself that it's it's so. Um, it's so much about people's conditioning that we are in this paradigm of a kind of manager subordinate dynamic that we've had for, you know, the last hundred years plus. So I think sometimes it's, it's, it's like hard to imagine something that you haven't seen. (laughs) Um, And so for many people, it feels like stepping into an unknown because it's it's there is no one size fits all. There's no blueprint for this. And there's no guarantee that it's going to, you know, improve uh your bottom line or it's gonna reduce overheads, you know. So I think it makes it quite a risky undertaking for people and it and sometimes it can be hard to convince like a board or something like that, you know, that this is something we want to do. It feels very different and and very scary and then i think people who start to uh experiment with things like self-managing teams and um again are often approaching change from that same paradigm that kind of traditional paradigm of change which is like creating a rollout plan and you know implementing that kind of like installing new ways of working and i think people can be quite um Impatient and kind of expect to see results very quickly, and when things become a bit messy or when the people don't immediately, you know, jump in, you know, lots of people say to me, you know, "Please, I don't get it. You know, we've we've declared that we're self managing. Why is no one self managing? No one's like taking the initiative. They're not taking responsibility. What what's going on?" Because it takes time for people to shift. There's so much like embodied. Um, learning like that we've inherited that even if you know it might sound very appealing to work in a more self-managed more autonomous way in practice it's quite unfamiliar and scary if I've never been responsible for making decisions before or you know proposing things it can be quite scary and vulnerable to do that and if I was previously a manager to suddenly change my role and my identity is is also quite a vulnerable thing you know if I'm used to solving problems and giving advice and suddenly I need to play more of like a coaching role and I've not been taught those skills and I've been promoted and praised my whole career for skills like drive and responsibility and smart and all of that kind of stuff you know it's it's quite confronting to realize oh this is a completely different way of being together so I think it's it's so understandable, therefore, that when it gets hard, a lot of people think, oh, this is too hard, or or even sometimes things are getting worse. Let's just go back to the way it was before. Maybe people do need to be told what to do, you know, or maybe we're doing this wrong. And I said to a group of people at a conference I spoke at recently, you know, if you're having these questions like, why aren't people doing this? Why is it taking so long? You know, why is this so hard? All of those things are not a sign that you're doing it wrong or that self-management doesn't work. It's just a sign that it's hard, that it's hard to shift our mindset. It's hard to shift our way of being with each other. And that takes time and everyone will do that at a different pace. And if we can sort of be okay with that, if we can accept that that's part of the process, then I think our way of relating to the process changes and we can start to notice little incremental shifts in things and and kind of have a more agile approach to trying different things and iterating and without kind of throwing the baby off out with the bathwater, you know yes, definitely it's so true what
0: you say about that and learning piece I think is always the the biggest surprise for me and I, I definitely you know when I've kind of gone through um you know all of the different trainings and self-management that's one it's been a massive personal development experience for me because there's been so much where I've gone wow I didn't realize that I had that way of being or that I was doing those certain things and that in in itself is you start to recognize your own conditioning and 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 start to unpick that Uh, and that can be a whole journey in itself as well kind of going through that that transition i mean was there anything for you where where you ever had that moment of oh my gosh i I keep doing this particular thing it's it's kind of it's like it's my kind of i suppose my personal growth thing to move through was there anything that kind of stuck out for you
1: oh yeah many things i mean (laughs) i think um i learned quite early on that i um, I'm not very good at delegating and I'm not very good at being um, kind of collaborating or leading in a way that's kind of adult to adult. So what I tend to do, you know, when I was leading a project, for example, is, you know, I would I would want to be really nice and and I would want people to like me and I'd want everyone to feel involved and all of that was great. But when the going got tough, then I found it really difficult to be kind of direct or frank or give people feedback or say, you know, the deadlines in in two days, and it, I'm sort of not confident that we're gonna make it in time. You know, what do we need to do to sort that out? Instead, I would sort of, you know, pussyfoot around and be like, um, so how's it going? <laughs> yeah, you think it's oh, okay, sure. All right, never mind. Cool, great. So for me that that balance of you know being kind of tough and empathetic that kind of radical candor has been an ongoing learning journey um and kind of you know exploring my own personal development around you know what drives that need to be liked and to be nice and when is it in the way for me to be effective and to to contribute to people to be a good you know leader or a good team player so I think that's been definitely a key one like I I am not someone who naturally leans into conflicts or tensions so it's been really transformative to to practice doing that and 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 realizing you know it takes courage and it's scary but realizing that every time I do it and I have a difficult conversation it's so transformative
0: and like you say, it's it's a practice. It's not something that we can just change overnight. And I know that's something I always say to people whenever I'm, I'm working with teams is just remember it is a practice. Remember that, you know, we're not going to walk out of this session and everything's just going to have been, you know, click our fingers and everything's going to be magically changed and we're all going to be changed. Um, it is that constant practice, that showing up and being really conscious about how you're showing up as well. I mean, it's interesting because I think there's a piece there as well for me where um, I don't know about you, but we don't really realise how much of ourselves we maybe were or weren't bringing into the workplace. Some of us have this mindset that we kind of walk over the threshold and we kind of, you know, flick the switch and we we have to act in a certain way and we have to play a role rather than maybe being our whole, whole authentic selves. Um, and then, you know, we don't realise how maybe things that we're experiencing kind of has an influence on that ripple effect Do you think that's something people have to be aware of that that kind of role playing happens so often in in terms of trying to shift that work climate?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that's a really nice way of putting it. I think many of us don't realize how how much role playing we are doing. You know, like I spend a lot of my time facilitating trainings and courses with managers and leaders and, you know, all of them generally consider themselves to be pretty empowering pretty authentic and often when we start practicing different conversations and I give them feedback that you know there's something going on with you you're sort of you become you're becoming a bit formal now or you know like wh- where have you gone <laughs> like you've sort of lost your humanness somehow and for many of them it's like a complete blind spot. you know we don't realize that we do that that I think especially when when we f- feel a strong agenda or a need to, you know, I need to get this person on board with this or, uh, you know, or I, I want them to do something, then we become this kind of parental version of ourselves or like a managerial version of ourselves. And we don't realize we're doing it. So I think it's what I've learned is that it's so valuable to have these kind of spaces, these like almost dojos where you can get, new levels of awareness and and have people kind of be a mirror to you to help you see these kind of blind spots in how you're being because i think the the learning and the personal development piece of new ways of working is so key that there's an inner shift that needs to happen in all of us and between us if we really want to work in new ways together it's not just structures and processes there's so much like just in our it's almost like in our very cells you know this this way of 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 relating to each other that we just step into and we don't even know it's there so I think that's that's so key and I see time and time again how you know unaware we are it's like not in our consciousness so I think I think that's so valuable oh my
0: gosh yeah that's such a great point that you bring about it being a blind spot because it is, it is one of those things where, um, and and I think as well, we, we kind of, I don't know about you from from how you feel about this, but we're also a little bit anti-feedback as well in kind of terms of our personal development. I mean, I remember when I, I mean, I'm a bit of a self-development junkie, so, <laughs> so I'm a sucker <laughs> for a self-development book, you know, um, love all Brené Brown stuff and, and, and the like, and It wasn't until I remember reading a few years ago, The Miracle Morning, and in that he says about how, um, you know, getting feedback from people around you is really important about how you're showing up or, um, you know, the things that you might be doing. Um, So he gives this kind of example of, of sending a feedback email, you know, ask, you know, a certain select few people in your inner circle to give you some really honest feedback about how you're showing up. And... I was so grateful for the people that replied to that email because there was so much that I could then take into my personal development work that I wasn't aware of before. Um, And it was great, you know, because there were things about myself that I'd always kind of been like, you know, celebrated like, oh, I'm really driven and I'm great at goal setting and achieving goals. And like, you know, but then, you know, some of the feedback was really interesting. It was like, Lizzie you need to kind of like let go a bit more you need to be a bit more intuitive and there was all these other bits of feedback where I was like wow I totally have not realized this about myself I mean what would you say in terms of that feedback is there anything that that you would recommend to people or is this something that you you see in a lot of the work that you do Lisa?
1: Yeah I'm I mean I'm a, a huge believer in the value of feedback and it's interesting because I think feedback has such a bad reputation in the world of work and rightly so I think in many ways because it has been contaminated I think with you know the dreaded performance review conversation and you know connected to my salary or my bonus and I think that makes it quite a scary thing you know like they've they've neuroscientists have shown that even just hearing the word feedback does something to our brain, it kind of goes into fight or flight mode, you know. So I think, understandably, a lot of people are, are scared of feedback, both kind of giving it and getting it. And I spend a lot of time with groups that when I ask the question, you know, what's your feedback culture like in the company, almost always people say, we don't give it as much as we would like to. And, you know, we don't feel confident giving it. So, I think there's a real kind of opportunity to reinvent what feedback means. I think and and see it as as a gift. And you know, I personally think that decoupling it from performance review type conversations and making it you know more more frequent, more organic. Um, I think that's important you know I I've become a bit skeptical about 360 degree feedback as well especially when it just becomes like a filling out of a form or something I think conversations are always going to be the most meaningful thing and some key principles that you know I've learned from my colleagues at tough leadership training are you know only to give feedback when someone's consented to it because I think you know, one of the reasons why feedback is kind of abused in traditional organizations is that managers think they can just give feedback to people whenever they want. And there's no choice then. So it means that the other person becomes just a kind of, you know, consumer of the feedback instead of like a partner in that learning conversation. So I think asking someone, you know, is it okay if I give you some feedback makes a big difference about how that feedback's received. And then listening, like listening is such a valuable leadership skill that we're not taught either, you know, unless you're a personal development junkie like you and I are. <laughs> um, so, you know, giving someone some feedback and then really listening to how it lands with them, because that helps the brain actually take in the feedback and decide, you know, is this something that I want to digest or not? So there's there's some books that I've read recently that are kind of anti-feedback like the book no more feedback by carol sanford or nine lies about work and there is a lot of research that shows that feedback is either ineffective or or even harmful but that research is in my opinion defining feedback as very top down and something that i as a manager do to you to fix you or correct you so I really think if we can reframe feedback as instead something which is like contributing to people's development something that I you know ask for because I really want it and it's scary to ask for feedback too you know what what you're doing with those emails for example that's scary um but really asking for feedback and and really daring to to give it to offer it um I think provides so many opportunities for learning it's also you know people often say feedback is subjective and I say yeah of course it is (laughs) you know but you know we learn by knowing our impact on others so if you know if you experience me as micromanaging for example or whatever maybe I think I'm not micromanaging at all but if but if I hear you say that then I think well maybe there's something in that that I'm blind to, that there's something in what I'm doing or how I'm being that you experience as micromanaging. And even if no one else tells me that feedback, it's valuable for me to know that because I can, you know, that's our relationship. And then we can explore that and I can consider and maybe be curious and and ask other people if they experience me as micromanaging. and, um, And then suddenly this whole other world opens up. So I'm a big fan of feedback. And I think it has a lot of baggage but if we can reimagine it I think there's so much possibility so much opportunity to create you know that that you know learning culture that so many organizations want feedback is like gold for that
0: yeah I want to go back as well to that piece you were saying about listening and how we're, we're not taught about listening because that's such a I mean I love it in um yours and Corinne's book um Mooseheads on the Table um, those stories around self-managing organizations in Sweden and um I love in there where you talk about there should be a listening gym on every street
1: yeah <laughs> and
0: it's like <laughs> oh my gosh can you imagine a world where there'd be more listening gyms and if people listened more um I mean do, do you find that something is that kind of where people could start if you were to kind of give people some kind of practical ways of how we can kind of shift that way of being from just listening from this you know and the way they could show up differently at work what would kind of be your kind of practical takeaways for people
1: yeah I mean I think Karen says this thing that I love about listening which is you know a good place to start with your journey of becoming a better listener is to start from a place that you don't listen at all because most of us are very good at overestimating our ability to do anything and if I start with a mindset that I'm pretty good at listening and I want to improve a bit then it's I'm going to sort of shut down opportunities to you know to really practice or to really get you know some some brutal feedback from people around me whereas if I start from the place that I don't listen at all that opens up more possibilities I think and there's a good practice um, that I got when I took the um, Otto Sharma's Theory U uh, course online. um, And he gave a simple exercise of um, noting down every day what percentage of levels of listening you listened at. So there are different levels of listening. You know, sometimes there's like a level of listening where we don't listen at all and we're preoccupied with our own thoughts. There might be a level of listening where I'm just listening to confirm or disconfirm what someone's saying so I'm kind of evaluating it and then the kind of highest level of listening if you like is like generative listening which is you know listening without an agenda being completely present with the other person and like you know allowing whatever emerges to emerge so when I did that activity for myself you know I was really surprised to observe that you know, most of the day, I was spending a lot of time doing lower levels of listening, you know, I was just downloading listening, or I was listening to confirm things. Um, and it just made me a bit more aware, so that I could be more intentional the next day of like, I want to improve my score, you know, at the end of the day that, that I've tried to be, you know, more more present or more, you know, empathetic listening. Um, so it's, it's amazing. And, you know, of course, sometimes it doesn't It's not practically possible to listen at that level all the time. So it's not like you need to be self-critical, but but yeah, it's just to become aware of how of the moments where we don't listen. Uh, You know, not with judgment or self-criticism, but just like, oh, that's interesting. I noticed I wasn't really listening in that meeting. You know, I I sort of already had my idea. I was just waiting for my turn to talk. And certainly setting intentions sometimes for, you know, I'm going into this conversation or this meeting and I'm just going to listen, you know, 50% more than I would normally and see what happens. So I think, you know, people listening to this might roll their eyes a little bit and be like, yeah, listening, you know, that's not groundbreaking. We all know that's a valuable skill, but it it really is like, Otto Sharma says it's like one of the most important leadership skills, because when you start to listen in another way, then you start to listen for, you know, what's in the way, for what's needed, new things, you know, come up to the surface. So although it seems like a basic idea, it's like, I guess it's like meditation or mindfulness. The more you practice, you know, the more you realize is possible. You see what I mean?
0: Oh, absolutely. I know whenever I, I, um, I'm sure you probably find the same as well. So whenever you're doing a workshop or a session with a team and, you you feel so tired afterwards and it's not always because of how much you're engaging because essentially it's the the whole point of that facilitation is to get the team engaging but it's it's that active listening that you have to then switch on and my I mean I am shattered after a day like doing a session because that active listening actually takes so much more energy than you realize like you know getting yourself to step back from constantly trying to say something or just you become so hyper-aware of how you listen or wanting to say something or, you know, you really have to... So you're kind of in this way where you're making sure that your yourself is stepping back and kind of holding yourself back and then really being attentive to, to picking up on what other people are saying. I mean, I'm sure you must find that as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think... Uh, like for me when I'm trying to support people in practicing a different kind of listening sometimes sometimes it's helpful to have like some really basic little techniques as well to try out because otherwise it can sound a bit abstract and recently my my partner actually started reading this book um, by a former FBI hostage negotiator and um, he suddenly started listening to me in a different way like at first I didn't I couldn't quite put my finger on what was going on but we were having conversations and he was doing something different and I was like something feels different in our conversations and then he revealed that he'd been reading this book and have been putting into practice some of these techniques and I was like wow that's I mean that makes a difference actually and it was really simple things like you know saying things like when someone says something just saying sounds like and then offering a kind of, you know, interpretation or seems like, su- you know, such and such is really important to you. And then, you know, I'd go, yeah, it is, you know, I did it, And I'd talk some more or just saying like one to three of the key words that I'd said s- so stressful as a question, you know, and leaving a pause. And then I'd say, yeah, stressful because. Blah, blah, blah. And so like those little things often I give to people is like, you know, it might feel a bit contrived or a bit unnatural but they are kind of magic little you know coordinates on the way to becoming a better listener because I think sometimes we assume just because my ears are working it means I'm listening but listening is so much about creating an experience of the other person feeling heard and really like gotten and that is a completely different thing to just you know allowing sound waves to go into your ears and into your brain
0: <laughs> oh my gosh absolutely I mean I remember when um I did uh, mental health first aid training um when I first started the business because I wanted it to be something that was within my skill set so that I was aware of it whenever I was working with teams and um they touch massively on listening as well in the mental health first aid training because people's language is really important and they're talking about certain situations. Um and they even had a had a statistic in their um handbook about how much we're we're taught um you know to to write or to read or to speak up but very little is done on the listening and it just to- I mean even that totally blew my mind in terms of listening and I know when you know people are you know listening um to me talk through something I'm so grateful at the end of it because it helps you unravel something that's in your head and when you've got a really good listener you know someone's helping you really kind of unravel that ball of string and kind of and you you feel clearer at the end of it so I'm always so grateful to a good listener so I I really try to work on being that way for others as well
1: Mm, yeah, definitely. It's it's a real generous act, I think.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. Thank you so much for sharing that, Lisa. That is a great practical tip. But I'm gonna have to discover that FBI book as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's like high stakes, you know, when you're trying to get uh when you're trying to get someone to release hostages. So You listening or not listening makes a big difference.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's literally life or death situation in that. Oh my gosh. Incredible. So I wanted to make this season a a bit of fun to to kind of cap it off at the end if you're up for a quick fire round, Lisa. Yeah. Go for
1: it. (laughs) So
0: when not at work, well we're where will we find you?
1: Hmm. I would say maybe the cinema. I'm a big film nerd, so I love to go to the cinema. Yes, me too. I'm I are you that person as
0: well that go on goes on to IMDb afterwards to read all the trivia because that's,
1: that's yeah. how nerdy I get. <laughs> yeah, I do that and I also go on Reddit and look at the discussions of everyone like interpreting symbolism and the different cinematography and the film score and all of the subtle intricacies (laughs) of that. So yeah, I'll I'll go down a rabbit hole for many hours. (laughs) I love it. I
0: love it. I'm with you on that one. And the one business word you want gone. So I keep hearing this word at the moment that makes me laugh is the ick. Like it makes you go, Oh, like kind of makes you cringe. What is the one business word that makes you cringe that you want gone from our business vocabulary?
1: there's so many um but the one that is top of mind for me right now is employee I I just think it's like an outdated term and it implies like a real passive stance I just think we don't need that word anymore yeah oh my gosh absolutely
0: it does it sounds like I, I was trying to think about this the other day when um I was writing a blog and I thought yeah it's and it's even the word worker as well when people kind of use I'm like ooh, mm. like it just yeah it makes me kind of I was re, yeah it's not good
1: and then you have more formal ones like individual contributor yeah. and <laughs> I mean, it's, you know it's like we have all these weird jargon terms or human resource it's it's like I want something more human
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely um, I mean you've given some great book recommendations already but is there one that you are like please go and go away and read this
1: Such a good question. Um, I mean, one that I'm reading at the moment that is quite um, for people who are listening, who are interested in being better facilitators or just better leaders in general. I'm reading a book called The Highest Common Denominator by Mickey Kashtan. And it's just a beautiful kind of diving into what she's learned over many many years of facilitating and how to um, facilitate a process she calls convergent decision making which is basically like taking in everyone's needs and then coming to a decision together so it's not compromise it's not consensus it's sort of something else but she just describes some really good Tools and practices and and mindsets for for being a great facilitator and great human being, really. So it's quite it's quite a niche, maybe nerdy book if you like. But but I'm really enjoying it. Ooh, thank you very much. I'll add that one to my Amazon wish list as well. <laughs> um,
0: and if there's one thing you could disrupt in the entire world, what would it be? Oh, it's
1: so hard to just choose one thing. Um, I think what came to mind was I'm really passionate about m- most of my work is about reinventing organizations, but I'm really passionate also about reinventing the education system. And some of the times when I get most inspired is when I visit kind of alternative innovative schools around the world. There's one here in Barcelona where I'm based called Learn Life and they They have like a self managed curriculum, and the children there are learning skills like listening and feedback you know from a young age and they're they're sort of self governing and and doing all of these incredible things and I just think if we can reinvent education, then we'll have this this group of of you know young people that will be much more able to solve problems that we're facing right now, which are big and and tricky. Um, And I get sort of sad sometimes because I think sometimes we're going backwards in some ways in the education system. I think about like the UK, where you and I are from. And I just think, you know, we know so much now about learning and about how to, you know, cultivate the kinds of mindset and skill set that young people are going to need when they go into the world of work, because we don't know what the future of work is going to look like. So it's just frustrating to, to see these kind of Victorian era school models still. It's like, come on, like there is another way. There's these incredible schools around the world. So yeah, if we could reinvent education, if I could choose only one thing, maybe I would say that. <laughs> oh gosh. Oh, I'm so great because I know you share so
0: much about that on Twitter, Lisa, about some of these um, initiatives that are going on, these organizations. And um, I know you did an amazing um, thread of some of the education um you know, around the world that are ad- adopting and more self self-governing. And I actually sent it to my sister-in-law because um she so she home educates in the UK, so she took her children mm. out of um the traditional education system. And there's so much around those philosophies and practices that she's trying to incorporate and she's shared that with her wider home ed community. Oh, because amazing. you know it, it's not fit for purpose and that was her frustration with the education system here in the UK it's just not fit for purpose it's um and I, I just watching her journey while well, while she's trying to you know, juggle running a business and home educating her children is just incredible. Um, So I'm I'm really grateful for you sharing those things as well. So definitely to anybody else who's out there, massively follow Lisa on Twitter because you'll get so many inspirational things to follow. So I'm always really grateful (laughs) for everything you put on Twitter. But is there anything else out there that we can know about at the moment, Lisa, that you're working on or you want to share with us?
1: Um, Well, I'm... I'm in the process of, um, because I have now 70 plus episodes on my podcast of interviews with, you know, amazing thought leaders and practitioners and people doing incredible things in organizations. And, um, a recent project has been collaborating with some colleagues to, uh, map out the transcript versions of those episodes and kind of tag them so that you can search by key terms and then find, you know, other people who reference that or books or ideas or countries or whatever. So so that's a work in progress. We've I think we've done about 15 transcripts or so. So we've still got a lot to go and it takes some time to do them, but um but that's something I'm working on because I really want to help people make those connections you know often i have have it in my head obviously when people ask me you know what's an example of a company that has reinvented how they do salaries or you know what's what's a company that has a great way of doing decentralized strategy and i have it in my head right now but i want to put it out there so that people can can find it um so that's one thing that i'm working on at the moment and And hopefully people will find that useful. Oh my gosh,
0: I I have no doubt that they definitely will because I always find your blogs useful. So thank you so much for joining um, me, Lisa. And for those of you who are interested in Lisa's work as well, I will add everything in the show notes so you can go and find her as well. But thank you so much for joining me on this episode, Lisa.
1: Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it.